Senate Foreign Relations Committee will come to order. We thank our witnesses for being here. Um, since serving beside the United States in the Korean War and then joining the North Atlantic Treaty Organization in 1952, Turkey has proven itself to be a strong ally and important partner to the United States. We continue to see positive day-to-day -day cooperation on security issues in and around the Republic of Turkey. Yet our relationship has not, not always been as productive as we in the United States might like. For example, in 2003, the Turkish government refused to allow the United States military to operate from, NATO, from a NATO base in Insulik, Turkey. In the last year, many of us in America have grown increasingly concerned about our partnership with Turkey. After the failed coup, the Turkish government arrested tens of thousands of people, instituted a state of emergency that keeps dissidents in legal limbo and otherwise crack down on the free press. Innocent Americans also have been caught up in these repressive acts, including Andrew Brunson, Brunson a well-regarded American pastor who has been imprisoned in Turkey for 334 days. His continued mistreatment speaks volumes and raises serious questions about whether or not it is safe to live in or even visit Turkey. I have repeatedly raised Mr. Brunson's case with top officials in both the Obama and Trump administrations and joined Ranking Member Cardin on February 15th in making a direct request to President Erdogan that Mr. Brunson be released and allowed to return to the United States. Erdogan has not only domestically acted against journalists, opposition leaders, and innocent Americans, he has rebuffed his allies internationally. Last month, Turkey agreed to give Russia $2.5 in return for service-to-air missiles that are incompatible with NATO systems. These developments require that the United States work to preserve our important relationship with Turkey while reassessing ways to address differences that threaten close ties between our countries. In that spirit, I look forward to hearing from our witnesses about the challenges we face with Turkey and how we can improve this important relationship I want to thank you again for being here, and I want to thank our ranking member uh, for the way that he works with me on this committee, for his service, and hope he had a good recess. We look forward to your comments. Well, Mr. Chairman, I missed you during the last five weeks, so it's, it's good to be back. It's good to see you. Uh, um, you were telling me about the Rotary Club speech you gave. And well, I actually wasn't telling you about it. You were asking about <laughs> right. it, and I think it's time to move on to our witnesses. <laughs> but it's good to be back, and uh, I was just going to comment that it's been an active period uh, in regards to world events that impact our committee. Uh, we know today we will get an all-members uh, classified briefing on North Korea and Afghanistan, but that's going to be very important issues that we have to take up during the fall, uh, particularly uh, the, the current situation in North Korea. Uh, we understand the limit of a military option, and I think the President's comments have made it even more challenging for us to use diplomacy in a manner that could bring about a change in behavior in North Korea. And then just yesterday, I was uh, reading the, the comments of Ambassador Haley as it relates to Iran, which uh, may very well uh, require this committee to, to get more engaged in Iran. So we have a very busy agenda, and I want to thank you for holding this hearing on Turkey, because I agree with you, Turkey is a critically important partner of the United States. It's a country that we looked upon to help us in our counterterrorism um, activities. It's a NATO partner. 
we have an important relationship with Turkey in regards to our efforts of defeating ISIS, to ending the war in Syria, dealing with refugee outflows from the Middle East, pushing back on Iran, strengthening NATO, addressing Russia's activities in Europe, not to mention our economic partnerships between the United States and Turkey. So we need Turkey working with us, not against us. There's been some very troubling developments. Uh, I, I first mentioned Turkey's leaders' repressive activities and human rights abuses. There's been a state of emergency since last year, uh, the failed coup. And the United States strongly opposes uh, the, the coup. Uh, we, don't, we believe democratic countries uh, do change in governments through the, the ballot, not through military activities. But since uh, that coup, failed coup, we've seen the leadership of Turkey take actions that are very troubling. The seizure of private assets, the dismissal of thousands of civil servants, the detaining of tens of thousands in pretrial detention. Mr. Chairman, you mentioned the ongoing uh, detention of Pastor Andrew Brunson and two Amnesty International uh, staff. That's outrageous. Uh, I would ask consent that the statement from Amnesty International be made part of our record. Without objection. The, the Turkey is a democracy, and yet when you look at how they've recently conducted their constitutional referendum, it does not meet the standards of a democratic country. It was not free and fair uh, referendum. So we have concern. The people of Turkey d d deserve leaders who will protect their democratic institutions. Another troubling development is reports of Turkish government considering the purchase of the S-400 missile interceptor batteries from Russia. Uh, if that goes forward, it seems like that's a possible violation of Section 231 of the Russian-Iran-North Korea sanctions bill. So there's a lot of issues that I, I think we need to take up, and I appreciate very much uh, that we have two very, very distinguished witnesses, and we welcome both of you to the committee. I do point out it is unfortunate that we cannot have a, a government panel, administration panel here, because quite frankly, the people who would normally be sitting at this dais from the administration have not yet been nominated or confirmed by the United States uh, Senate. Uh, ambassador Bass, our distinguished ambassador, is now heading to Afghanistan, or at least has been nominated to Afghanistan. We need a confirmed ambassador in Turkey as part of our strategy for uh, the issues that we're going to be talking about today. So, Mr. Chairman, I'm very happy we have two very distinguished witnesses, but I am disappointed we don't have the people in the administration who can appear before this committee. Well, thank you, and I uh, appreciate you working with me and other committee members uh, when we do get nominations to move them out as quickly as possible, and I was glad that uh, we were able to get a, a large number of them confirmed before this last recess. Um, our first witness today is Dr. Stephen A. Cook, the Eni and Enrico Maite Senior Fellow for the Middle East and Africa Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations. Our second witness is Dr. Amanda Sloat, Fellow at the Democracy and Hard Places Initiative at Harvard University. We want to thank you both for being here, in spite of the fact that you might not be here if we had administration witnesses. Um, we look forward to your expert testimony. We, we appreciate uh, your service in this way. And if each, each of you would take about five minutes to summarize, we'd appreciate it. And then, as you know, we, we'll be asking questions. But if you begin in the order introduced, I'd appreciate it. 
Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman and, and Ranking Member Cardin, uh, for the opportunity to appear before you today to discuss priorities and challenges in the U.S.-Turkey relationship. Changes in Turkey, the United States, and, the global, and global politics since the end of the Cold War require a reevaluation of the U.S.-Turkey relationship. As the President of the Council on Foreign Relations, Richard Haas, recently asserted, Turkey may be an ally, but it is not a partner. In the 15 years since the ruling Justice and Development Party, known by its acronym AKP, came to power, it has provided stability of single-party government, and with that, Turks have benefited from new economic opportunities, infrastructure development, and improved access to health care. There has been considerable political regression, though. A little more than a decade since Turkey began membership negotiations to join the European Union, it looks less like a European democracy, more like an elected autocracy. President Recep Tayyip Erdogan's opponents have been routinely subjected to coercion, intimidation, and violence. Since the failed coup in July 2016, more than 200,000 people have been detained, arrested, or fired from their jobs. Approximately 130 news outlets have been shuttered. Foreign journalists and international and Turkish human rights professionals have also been arrested. The ripple effect of this crackdown goes well beyond those directly caught up in the purge affecting entire families and ruining the future prospects of many more. The deepening of authoritarianism in Turkey has had grave consequences for ideals that Americans hold dear, including freedom of expression, freedom of assembly, freedom of the press, and respect for human rights. It also has costs for the bilateral relationship between the United States and Turkey. President Erdogan's populism, nationalism, and authoritarianism often manifests itself in hostility towards the United States and results in policy choices that are at odds with American interests and goals. The list of American concerns is extensive, including the potential Turkish purchase of Russia's S-400 air defense system, government threats to rescind American access to Indralik Air Base, promises of military operations against the PKK, a terrorist organization, but in Iraq, challenging Iraqi sovereignty, potentially weakening Prime Minister Haider al-Abadi, warming of relations between Ankara and Tehran, Turkey's determination throughout much of the spring and early summer to complicate American efforts to destroy the self-styled Islamic State in, Syria, in its Syria's stronghold, Raqqa, because of the American alliance with the People's Protection Units, known as the YPG. Now, the Turks do have a legitimate argument about the YPG and its ties to terrorism, but Ankara played an important role pushing the United States towards cooperation with this group when the Turks refused to cooperate with the United States in the fight against the Islamic State. Washington's military ties with the YPG are also propelling Turkey's relations with Tehran and Moscow. The final source of tension is the venomous anti-American discourse that Turkish officials and media outlets have employed since the summer of 2016, as well as the treatment of Americans both inside and outside of Turkey. The government and government-friendly media have placed blame for the coup among, on, among others, U.S. Central Command's General Joseph Votel, the CIA, American officers serving at Indralik, a professor at Lehigh University named Henri J. Barkey, and your colleague, Senator Charles Schumer. All of them have been accused of working with Fethullah Gulen, the Pennsylvania-based cleric who the Turkish government accuses of being behind the coup. There are also at least 15 U.S. citizens who have been jailed in Turkey. Most of them are being held in pretrial detention. Of those, American consular officials in Turkey have been denied access to five of them. The abuse of Americans in Turkey, which has compelled experts like myself to avoid visiting the country, has taken place alongside violence or threats of violence against Americans in the United States. What can the United States do about this? American officials have relied too much on private diplomacy 
and more honey than vinegar in public to encourage the Turkish government to support our goals and adhere to their own principles. It has not worked. There is no guarantee that the application of public pressure on Turkey will alter its behavior for the better. The opposite may well occur, but it is a superior policy option than sanctioning Turkish actions through silence. Toward that end, there is an opportunity for the United States, especially the Congress, to make Turkey aware of Washington's displeasure with its democratic backsliding, its treatment of Americans, and a foreign policy that is at variance with the interests and goals of the United States. It can do this by, first, instructing the Government Accountability Office to conduct a study of the value of the U.S.-Turkey relationship and make the results of that study public. Request that the Department of Defense study the costs and modalities of leaving Indrilik Air Base or shifting some of its operations to facilities in the area and making the results of that study public. Third, require that the State Department review its travel advisory to Turkey. Fourth, restrict Turkey's participation in big-ticket, high-tech weapons development and procurement. And finally, publicly demand that Turkish officials refrain from their ongoing efforts to politicize the American judicial process in demanding the extradition of Fethullah Gulen and the end of the trial, the coming trial against an Iranian Turkish businessman named Reza Zarab. There is a chance that none of these demands will work, but it will at least put Turkish officials on notice that the United States will not sit idly by as Turkey undermines its policies and threatens its officials and citizens. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Dr. Slow. I, Chairman Corker, Ranking Member Cardin, distinguished members of the committee, thank you for the invitation to discuss recent developments in Turkey and the implications for our bilateral relationship. With the Chairman's permission, I'd like to submit my full testimony for the record and will summarize key points now. Without objection, thank you. To state my bottom line up front, Turkey is undoubtedly a complicated and a challenging NATO ally. However, it remains strategically important to the United States. Its government, as well as its people, require our continued engagement. A year after the attempted coup, Turkish society remains deeply traumatized by the aftermath of July 15, 2016, as well as regional risks to the country's security. There is little Western anchor given tense relations with the United States and the European Union. Gulenists and separatist Kurds are seen as existential threats. And amidst an indefinite state of emergency, dissent is limited, press freedom has been curtailed, the opposition remains fractured, and the economy is weakening. Many Turks were initially supportive of the government's response to the coup attempt, which was neither expected nor desired. There was frustration with the perceived delay by the West in condemning the coup, and there remains consternation that the alleged coup plotter, Muslim cleric Fethullah Gulen, lives in self-imposed exile in Pennsylvania. Unfortunately, actions by the Turkish government are weakening the democracy it purports to protect. Initial efforts to arrest suspected coup plotters and affiliated Gulenists have morphed into an apparent witch hunt against all political opponents, leaving a vulnerable state apparatus and a paranoid society. The elastic definition of terrorism alters the bounds of what is politically permissible, while the state of emergency has had a chilling effect on public dissent. The, the domestic situation is unlikely to improve in the near future. Turkish citizens voted last April on whether to provide sweeping powers to the president. The results reflected a stark division in society. Official figures showed 48% of voters opposed the reforms, yet this number could be even higher, as the OSCE cited a restrictive campaign framework and there were widespread allegations of fraud. As preparations for parliamentary and presidential elections are underway for 2019, Turkish civil society, I would argue, remains bowed but unbroken. This was seen most visibly in July, when hundreds of thousands of Turks rallied for justice in Istanbul, the largest public protest since Gezi Park in 2013. 
In addition to domestic challenges, Turkey sits in a turbulent neighborhood. It has been particularly affected by the civil war and battle against the Islamic State in Syria. These conflicts flooded Turkey with over 3 million refugees, created complex dynamics with Russia and Iran, contributed to major terrorist attacks, and further complicated relations with the PKK, a U.S.-designated Kurdish terrorist organization. Different priorities in Syria have contributed to tension in U.S.-Turkey relations. The most contentious debates have concerned local forces with whom to partner in the fight against ISIS. Turkey vehemently objects to U.S. cooperation with the Syrian Kurdish group known as the YPG, given the group's links to the PKK, as well as their aspirations to create an autonomous region in northern Syria. This Gordian knot will remain a bilateral sticking point, as thorny decisions remain about security and governance arrangements in post-ISIS Syria. Despite these challenges, it would be a mistake to curb relations significantly with Turkey. It remains an important bridge between Europe and the Middle East. There is utility in continued efforts to keep Turkey anchored in a Euro-Atlantic community based on shared values, even though Turkey does not always live up to those values. There are also real risks from a failed relationship, including setbacks to U.S. efforts to fight the Islamic State, a weakened ability to stem refugee flows into Europe, and the degradation of one of the region's most successful economies. Furthermore, Turkey's foreign policy orientation matters to the West. If the EU and U.S. abandon Turkey, Ankara will seek partners elsewhere, as demonstrated by its recent interactions with Russia and Iran. As a starting point, the U.S. needs to take seriously Turkish security concerns. On Gulen, the U.S. government has made clear his extradition is a matter for the courts, but officials should continue seeking ways to help bring those responsible to justice. Relatedly, the U.S. and Turkey should continue their high-level dialogue on Syria and the Kurds. The U.S. should continue pressing for the resumption of peace talks with the PKK, reiterating its opposition to the YPG's broader territorial aspirations, and working with Turkey and regional partners to develop a long-term political strategy for Syria. Finally, rule of law must remain on the bilateral agenda. Public rebuke isn't always the most effective way to motivate political change, especially in a country quick to anti-American sentiment. Yet those in Turkish society who value democracy are seeking moral support. Most critically, senior American officials must stress the importance of human rights and good governance in private conversations with their Turkish counterparts. Relatedly, the U.S. should expand people-to-people -people ties, including revigorated efforts to enhance our trade relations. In closing, the only beneficiaries of significantly curtailed ties between the U.S. and Turkey are those who don't want the country facing West. Continued engagement, including honest discussion with the government about our differences, plus expanded outreach to business and civil society, remains the only way forward. Thank you. Thank you. Senator Cardin. Dr. Sloat, I, I agree with your conclusion. So let's talk about one of the most sensitive issues, and that is the YPG and our campaign in Syria and Raqqa, in which, as I understand it, there was considerable outreach by the United States to Turkey as the importance of using the YPG as the only viable way that we could get the necessary ground support in order to deal with the campaign in Syria. Do you believe there was a different way to handle this? I thank you for the, the question. I should note, I served in the Obama administration for three years as the Deputy Assistant Secretary for Turkey up until a year ago, so was directly involved in large numbers of those conversations. 
Uh, I think there was a, a history of differing priorities between the United States and Turkey, with the Turks prioritizing from the beginning the removal of Assad, uh, the U.S. choosing not to get involved in the civil war in Syria, but instead focusing on the campaign against ISIS. And that was part of what complicated discussions between the U.S. and Turkey on how to respond. Uh, I would argue that there were decisions that the Obama administration could have made uh, several years prior to potentially support additional Sunni Arab forces. I believe we are in a position now where we have fairly limited options to the YPG, but, but I do not believe that was necessarily where we needed to end up. You think there were other options for ground support? Effectively dealing with the Raqqa campaign other than use go doing with the YPG? For, for the Raqqa campaign, I believe the, the YPG was likely the main option that, that we had. Yeah. I, don't, I don't think there was other, from what we've been briefed on and, and our own information, I, I, don't, I, I think the United States, uh, the, the coalition forces have very little other options. The question is, was there a better way of handling this with Turkey? And as I understand, we've invested a great deal of time in working with Turkey to explain the military options that we had. Uh, Dr. Cook, I want to uh, thank you for your four suggestions. I think they're all very ones that we should very much be considering. I want to get to military procurement specifically because it's an interesting proposal you have in regards to restricting arms sales to, to Turkey, which is something that this committee gets engaged with. But it looks like that Turkey is looking towards Russia, as I've said in my opening comment with the S-400 uh, missile interceptor. It also appears that could very well violate the recent statute passed by Congress on sanctions against Russia we would expect a NATO partner to work with us in our efforts to change behavior in Russia as it relates to European security. That's not the case right now with Turkey. Do you believe that the United States should be in a position to tell Turkey that if they proceed with this, that it may very well cause action in America dealing with our sanction authority? Uh, thank you for the question, Senator. Absolutely. I think we should make it abundantly clear, and not just privately, uh, but publicly to the Turks, that if they move forward with the S-400, there will be consequences for them. Uh, this, their relationship with Russia is built on two separate issues. The first is uh, the United States is not a diplomatic or political player in Syria, and for the Turks to ensure their interests in a post-war Syria, they have to deal with the main power broker there, and that's the Russians. Second, the Turks tend to try to play the Russians or the Iranians against the United States. Every time they get into trouble, Turkish officials show up in Tehran, or they make noises about weapons procurement, whether it's from the Chinese or the Russians. We have yet to make it publicly, abundantly clear to the Turkish government that there will be consequences in terms of future weapons procurement and other types of relations should they move forward and violate, uh, violate these sanctions. As I said, there's no guarantee that this will work. At the same time, the kind of private engagement that the Obama administration and the Trump administration have, uh, have pursued clearly hasn't gotten the Turkish government's attention. Now, one point, if you, if you allow me, on the question of the YPG. There was another option to the YPG. It was called the Turkish Armed Forces. However, as my colleague uh, uh, Dr. Slope pointed out, the Turks had other priorities when it came to the confrontation with the Assad regime. They prioritized that over 
the Islamic State. And to some extent, the Turks had a confluence of interests with the Islamic State because the Islamic State was battling Kurds in northern Syria. So it strikes me there was an option, but the Turks took it off the table by refusing to work with us in the fight against the Islamic State. Thank you. Mr. Chairman, I have another question, but I'll wait to the second round. I'm sorry. Senator Markley. Uh, thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. I appreciate that the State Department and the administration have been actively engaged in supporting specific NGOs that have been shut down by the Turkish government. That being said, this administration has said shockingly little publicly about the closing of civil society. Through 2012 to 2014, the Department of State funded international NGOs to conduct humanitarian work in a context where there was no governance, no UN, no International Committee of the Red Cross, or typical systems of protections. And these NGOs really stepped up. They provided massive levels of assistance to millions of extremely vulnerable people. Yet, when policies of the Turkish government changed, these NGOs were left exposed and pretty much on their own, and also leaving millions of Syrians at risk and underserved. What suggestions would you have for us and for the administration to ensure the protection of the civil society space and stop any further autocratic sliding in Turkey? Can you all explain why you think the government in Turkey is cracking down on civil society and what long-term harm will result if it continues and what the resulting legacy of Erdogan would be? I thank you for the, the question. As I understood your question, one part of it was talking about the work of civil society organizations with, with refugees. Um, and we've had a, a large number of, of American organizations who have been working on the ground in, in Turkey to support Syrian refugees, uh, with Turkey hosting upwards of, of three million of them. Uh, a number of them have had challenges over the years in terms of registration. And also extensive work inside Syria based out of Turkey. Right. And, and Mercy Corps, un, unfortunately, is, is one of the organizations that has been uh, kicked out of, of Turkey and what to me seems like Turkey cutting off its nose to, to spite its face, since given the significant demand that, that refugees have, there is a significant need for these organizations to, to continue their, their work. I think the broader crackdown across the board in civil society in, in Turkey is extremely unfortunate. Some of this is being done within the guise of, of countering terrorism, and the Turkish government's definition of terrorism seems seems to be constantly expanding from those who are supporting Kurdish separatists, those who are focusing on, on Gulen, uh, and now anybody more broadly who is seen as, as opposing the government. Uh, I would argue that the United States need to continue engaging publicly in terms of expressing our support. That's an important thing that Congress can do. It's also something the administration should be doing. I think the State Department has been coming out with, with some statements in recent months expressing condemnation of the arrests of Amnesty International and others. I think it would be helpful to see more coming from the White House. I also think there needs to be more private diplomacy. Uh, reports have suggested that President Trump did not raise any of these issues in his bilateral meeting with President Erdogan, and that's unfortunate. We need to have our leaders at the highest level expressing their disapproval of these domestic actions in Turkey. Thank you. Thank you. I, I essentially agree with the, with the thrust of, of Dr. Sloat's arguments. It, it strikes me that as long as the Turkish government uh, it, it continues to expand its definition of terrorism, civil society organizations, 
opponents of the government, journalists, academics will all be vulnerable to arrest, uh, being held in pretrial detention endlessly uh, and for further deterioration of human rights uh, in the country. As I um, pointed out both in my written testimony and my summary of my written testimony, uh, it's important for the United States to publicly stand for its own values uh, and the values that the Turkish government purportedly uh, seeks to uphold as well in uh, signaling uh, to the Turkish government that this is unacceptable from the perspective of the United States and that there will be consequences along a range of issues for the Turkish government as long as they continue to violate human rights in such an egregious way. Well, thank you, both of you. And I, I think it's incredibly important that our executive branch, that our president's team does flag these, these, these issues, a profound, profound impact on hundreds of thousands of folks who have been cut off from basic nutrition during extraordinarily difficult uh, circumstances. There are signs that Erdogan government influenced the results of the April referendum, yet despite the State Department noting discrepancies in voting, the, our president congratulated him on his election success. It's troubling that a NATO ally may have tampered with election results to allow its presidents to consolidate power. How significant was President Trump's positive response to the election results? And do you believe Trump's business conflicts of interest had an impact? Uh, thank you, uh, Senator. I, I can't speak to the president's uh, business interests in, in Turkey. I just don't know uh, enough about it. Uh, what I will say is it strikes me that there was um, a theory behind the idea of calling President Erdogan and congratulating him on this uh, on, on the referendum, uh, which of which there have been many questions about. Uh, the idea was to um, bring uh, President Erdogan along so that the Turks would not complicate our operations in conjunction with the YPG against the Islamic State stronghold in Raqqa. Uh, what I think decision makers of the White House did not count on was that President Erdogan would pocket that phone call from the President of the United States and continue to pursue a policy that complicates our efforts in, in Syria. Thank you. Anything else you'd like to add? Doctor? Um, I, I would just, just add that I, I mean, I, the, the phone call, I think, was, was unfortunate in the sense that it legitimized a, a referendum that a large number of international organizations, including the OSCE, had expressed concerns about. Uh, Turkey had a, a, a fairly recent history of, of relatively free and fair elections. Uh, this referendum certainly was not uh, free in the sense that, or fair in the sense that it was being conducted under the state of emergency, and, and a lot of the concerns that observers have raised certainly certainly have called into question the, the fairness of it as, as well. Thank, thank you very much. Thank you. Senator Gardner. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you to our two witnesses today. And I'm struck by a couple of things in your testimony today and your comments and statements you've made. Um, in, uh, in, in one statement, Mr. Cook, you stated that um, uh, paragraph, the deepening of authoritarianism in Turkey and the development of a cult of personality has had grave consequences for ideals that Americans hold dear, including freedom of expression, freedom of assembly, freedom of the press, and respect for human rights. Uh, talking about uh, hardly being a model partnership, uh, considerable political regression, uh, populism, nationalism, authoritarianism often manifests manifest itself in hostility toward the U.S., results in policy choices that are at odds with American interests and goals, complicating our effort to fight terrorism, uh, sources of tensions, venomous anti-American discourse, pretty tough stuff uh, in a relationship that's very critical and important. 
Um, you also then, toward the end of your statement, say that there are fears within the policy community that Turkey has become unmoored from the West. Those fears are warranted but not entirely accurate. So how do we address the challenges we have with uh, that you lay out very clearly in the statement and get to a point where they aren't entirely accurate and, indeed, we can carry forward in a meaningful, better relationship when it comes to terrorism, when it comes to uh, other interests in the region and the leadership that we need from a NATO member nation? Well, Senator, thank you for uh, the question. They're, they're difficult questions, and they're, they're ones that I think all of us in the Turkey-watching community wrestle with uh, uh, all the time. Uh, and that is, is that how do we uh, anchor uh, Turkey to the West and, and reaffirm our commitment to Turkey's security uh, and, and carry on with the, the transatlantic relationship with Turkey as a firm partner of it while the Turks are undertaking actions that, that undermine our efforts, the efforts of the West, and um, uh, violate uh, human rights. And as I said in my testimony, the ideals that, that Americans hold dear. Uh, my conclusion is uh, two things. First, uh, there's actually little uh, that will compel the Turks uh, to uh, change the course of their foreign policy and their domestic politics if we continue to define the relationship the way in which we've defined it over the course of the last 60 years. Uh, model we, partnership. As, as a model partnership, as a strategic partnership. Certainly the Turks uh, were critical partners in, in, in the Cold War, fought with American soldiers in the Korean conflict. Uh, there were crises and problems during, uh, during that period, but they were overcome by the overarching threat that the Soviet Union presented. There is no overarching threat or big project that the two countries work on together. One could say in the abstract that both countries are opposed uh, and want to work together to counter terrorism, yet the Turks accuse the United States of working with terrorists, and the United States accuses Turkey of working with terrorists. So we have to reevaluate and see this country is a different country, is a country with uh, differing interests. Its geography dictates that um, it it pursues policies that um, are in conflict at times uh, with the United States. But there is something to salvage from the relationship. As Dr. Slow pointed out, uh, Turkey uh, is in a, a critically important location. If you draw lines out from the Turkish capital, Ankara, the country literally sits at the center of many of our most pressing foreign policy issues. That's why I have come to the conclusion that to continue to allow the Turks to give us assurances in private while then going out in public and contradicting what they have assured us is no longer the way to go, uh, that we should demand public accountability for the Turks. I would remind you, I cannot remember a time that this government or any Turkish government has defended the strategic relationship with the United States in the same way that policymakers here in the United States have defended it. And my, the purpose of my recommendations and my testimony is to get the attention of the Turks that to uh, continue to provide those assurances without upholding them that there should be consequences. It's only through that, it strikes me, that we will uh, potentially affect a change in Turkey's behavior, both at home and abroad. And how should we expect this relationship now between Turkey and Russia uh, to change the way we view Turkey as a NATO participant? Well, well, certainly there is, there is reason to be concerned about the Turkish relationship with Russia. Much has been made about uh, President Erdogan's apparent admiration for Russian President Vladimir Putin. Much has also been made about the apparent rise of Eurasianists 
uh, within the Turkish officer corps. These are people who uh, would like to explore uh, developing their relations with, uh, with Russia more and, and turning away from the United States in the West. Um, but there are limits to the Russian-Turkish relationship. Uh, first, the Turks don't trust the Russians, and they have no reason to trust the Russians. They have gone to Moscow primarily because the United States is no longer a factor in the Syrian conflict, and in order to ensure their interests, they need to deal with the Russians. This question of purchasing uh, defense uh, equipment from Russia is uh, something that the Turks have sought to do not just from Russia, but from the Chinese. It is an effort to try to, on their part, to try to put the United States and the West on notice. There's also a concerted effort within Turkey to develop their own defense industrial base. And uh, they often require technology offsets that will help them de uh, develop that defense industrial op uh, offsets. It's unclear to me that this deal will go through. And then finally, there is the question of Turkey's ta economic ties to the West. The United States is not uh, a major player in the Turkish economy. All of our major companies are there. But really, the trade and investment flows are between Turkey and Europe. And, and that, if anything, anchors uh, Turkey to the West. Um, so I'm not uh, – it doesn't keep me up at night, uh, the idea of Turkey drawing close, uh, closer to the Russians and literally turning from the West. But um, I think that we will uh, not be able to restrain their behavior unless we take a firm stand on what they have done in Syria, what they are doing at home, uh, what their relations with the Russians do, in fact, look like. Dr. Dr. Sloat, thank you. Thank you. Senator Murphy. Uh, thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Thank you both for being here. In uh, August, uh, we read reports about uh, a clash inside Syria between U.S. forces uh, and Turkish-aligned forces. Um, this comes on the heels of reports from earlier this year about uh, military clashes between the United States and Iranian-allied uh, forces inside Syria. This seems to be a consequence of a fairly rapid and often unannounced buildup of U.S. forces uh, inside Syria. Um, you know, some people talk about the fight for Raqqa as if it is the beginning and the end uh, of the conflict with ISIS, and yet what we know is that that conflict is just going to morph into one that shifts geographically to the Euphrates River Valley, other places throughout uh, Syria. Can you both talk a little bit about what the f future potential conflicts are between U.S. forces um, or forces that the U.S. is directly aligned with and Turkish-based forces um, in and around Raqqa and as the fight moves to other places? How have we been successful or unsuccessful in efforts to deconflict uh, with those forces that the Turks are uh, supplying uh, and funding, and what are the risks going forward? I, thank you, Senator. I think you're absolutely right that it's a very messy patchwork at the moment in, in Syria. Uh, U.S. and Kurds are largely controlling the area east of the Euphrates. Uh, the Syrian regime with Russia and Iran controlling the center. Turkish-backed forces on the northern border. Uh, and then Jordan and Russia have created a, a fairly successful deconfliction zone in, in the southwest. So you're absolutely right. The focus at the moment has been on Raqqa. But once Raqqa is concluded, people are going to be looking toward Deir Zur. They're going to be looking down south of the 
Euphrates River, uh, and then also what's happening on, on the Syrian-Iraqi uh, border. The U.S. thus far has been partnering with the, the YPG in that northern area uh, out of what I believe has been military expedience in terms of the priority of clearing ISIS from that territory. Uh, the YPG additionally did not want to go to Raqqa because it's outside their main area of interest in terms of the northern cantons that they have been looking to connect. And so there's going to be questions about whether or not the YPG are willing to continue pushing south of, of Raqqa. The broader question that then needs to be addressed is what are going to be the security arrangements there? Who is the hold force, particularly in these predominantly Sunni Arab towns, and what are going to be the governance arrangements in, in those areas? And so I think this is going to be a particularly complicated battle space. It's going to continue to be a contentious issue between the U.S. and Turkey, and I think all of the, the forces operating in, in this very congested Battle space are going to continue to have the potential for, for conflict with each other because of the different competing alliances, not only between Turkey and the U.S., but also what some of these Kurdish and other forces are looking to achieve politically on the ground. Before I ask Dr. Cook to comment, that's because as we move further south, there is still the potential that we will be relying on YPG or Kurdish-aligned forces or their new potential conflicts as we look to new partners um, as we move out of Raqqa and, and, and into parts south. I think there, there is a question of, of who is going to be the force that is going to move on Deir Zur, whether that force is going to get there before the regime um, and the Iranian-Russian-backed regime gets there, whether the YPG pushed down that far south, and it is also not clear to me that we have established who the hold force is going to be in Raqqa and, and beyond. And so I think this is going to continue to be a, a live question. Uh, ideally, we would be able to find some Sunni Arab forces that we can work with as a partner force in this area, uh, both to diversify the, the friends that we have on the ground and also to be working with a, a group of fighters that represents a broader swath of, of the Syrian population than the YPG necessarily does. Dr. Cook. Uh, thank you, Senator. Just a, just a few things to add in response to your initial question. Uh, just sitting here while I was listening to, to Dr. Slot respond to you, I came up with at least six or seven different combinations of, of groups that will fight each other or are going to fight each other or are fighting each other or could potentially fight with each other once uh, Raqqa is, is, is liberated. I, uh, the, the one thing I, I, I do have to add, though, is that whatever assurances that the United States gets from any number of these groups about what they will and won't do once Raqqa is liberated, we should discount immediately. Uh, not the Turks, not the SDF, not the YPG, not, some, not the FSA, who is now who in August was firing on uh, American forces, not any of these groups, because we have a particular view of what should happen in Syria that, and we've made common cause with groups that have a different view, but because they want our assistance, they're willing to tell us that they share our views. But once Raqqa is liberated, uh, once Deir Azor is likely to be liberated by government, uh, government forces after their, the liberation of the garrison and the neighborhoods around it, uh, I think all bets are off. I would expect that the YPG will want to uh, move forward and try to bring together independent cantons and, and create a territorially contiguous area which will draw the Turks further into the conflict in, in Syria. You're quite right that the liberation of Raqqa is certainly not the end game in Syria. And we'll be dealing with this messy, at best, patchwork of different forces fighting at each other for quite some time. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Senator Resch. 
Mr. Cook, in your testimony, you referenced uh, denying Turkey access to high-tech weapons programs and development. Uh, do you share the same sentiment when it comes to uh, lower-tech arms, more conventional arms? Thank you, sir. I, I, I certainly believe that our uh, commitment to Turkish security should remain uh, and that uh, Turkey should be able to defend itself. It lives in a, in a very difficult and tough neighborhood. Uh, however, my concern in terms of uh, in suggesting that the the Turks uh, should be denied access to those uh, weapons development is that it's almost a reward for Turkey's bad behavior, for its uh, pursuing policies that undermine our own goals and interests, and for its I wouldn't even call it uh, democratic backsliding. What I would call it deepening authoritarianism, and uh, in, in Turkey. But uh, I certainly wouldn't. What I'm not calling for in my testimony is for a breach in relations between the two countries. I, I get that. But why, why wouldn't the same argument apply to uh, low-tech? Uh, as I said, um, providing, uh, making Turkey a partner in the development and deployment of the F-35 is a reward for bad behavior, whereas providing them with uh, other weaponry that they can help defend themselves strikes me as, as uh, two different things. Yeah, thank you. Um, re regarding uh, Turkey joining the EU, uh, could you talk a little bit about Turkey's ability to do that, how you see that? Turkey technically remains a candidate for European Union membership. Uh, the European Commission offered Turkey an invitation to begin those uh, negotiations in, I believe it was March 2005. After those, shortly after those negotiations began, a number of European countries uh, essentially put those talks on, on hold. Uh, those are reasons uh, – the reasons for that have to do with everything concerning Europe and Europe's inability to figure out what the European Union is, whether it's a, a geographic entity coterminous with predominantly Christian countries or whether the EU is a club of countries that have come together based on common ideals and principles related to uh, democracy and freedom. If it is the former, certainly Turkey – a country that is 99.8% uh, Muslim will never be able to join the European Union. If it is the latter, uh, at least in the abstract, Turkey can become a member of the European Union. But under current conditions, the deepening of authoritarianism in Turkey, the grave violations of human rights, uh, the, uh, w by all measures, uh, uh, the rigged, uh, referendum of last April. Turkey doesn't meet any of the political criteria to join the European Union. Dr. Uh, Dr. Slot, do you have a comment on that? I think there's a similar debate going on within the European Union to the one that we're having here within the United States in terms of having a lot of concern about the domestic trends in Turkey, uh, but also recognizing the necessity of partnering with Turkey on some shared regional challenges and for the EU to an even greater extent uh, the degree of economic cooperation that you have between the, the two countries. Uh, the EU also has a, a further interest in partnership with Turkey, which is Turkish assistance in managing the significant ret refugee 
refugee flows coming out of Syria and, and, and heading into uh, Europe. Uh, the European Parliament has called recently to sus suspend accession talks with the, the Turks, um, and certainly relations between uh, Turkey and some EU countries, particularly Germany, are at about the lowest point now that, that they have been. Uh, so I think a lot of people have been waiting to see what happens in the German elections if Chancellor Merkel gets reelected to see whether or not Turkey is able to, to move forward in terms of, of some of those accession talks. Merkel has been making pretty significant noise about wanting to stop discussions about upgrading the Turkey-EU customs union, which is something the Turks have, have long wanted to do, uh, has expressed concern in recent days about moving forward with, with accession talks. Uh, there is an argument to be made to keep Turkey on that path because it, it binds it within a framework of values and rules that it needs to continue to, to aspire to, uh, but certainly relations between the two sides are, are particularly tense right now. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Thank you. Senator Kane. Thank you, Mr. Chair, and thanks to the witnesses. Uh, your written testimony is great, and I just really want to ask about one issue that I think we're grappling with here, and that's uh, the strong relationship we've had with the Kurds in both northern Syria and northern Iraq. Um, there's a Kurdish referendum in northern Iraq scheduled, I guess, for the end of this month, the administration has taken the very strong and clear position of requesting that that referendum be delayed uh, on the theory that it could be very destabilizing right now. The Turkish government, uh, PM Erdogan, has had a pretty strong uh, degree historically of support for the Barzani government in uh, Erbil. But my understanding is that the Turks are very opposed to this referendum. Talk to us a little bit about that, that tradition of support for the Barzani government, but why Turkey is opposed to the referendum and what might be consequences of it if it goes forward. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Senator Kane. It, it was an extraordinary turnaround for Turkey with, during the uh, invasion of Iraq in 2003 was the external power most likely to invade because of Kurdish nationalism in northern Iraq to some years later, four or five years later, establishing uh, close ties with uh, Masoud Barzani's KDP, the dominant party in the, in, in the Kurdistan regional government, uh, to the extent that more than 1,500 Turkish companies invested in, uh, in the KRG. In Erbil, the capital of the KRG, it almost looks like a Turkish city. Uh, in, in a lot of ways, and that there was a, a calculation on the part of the KDP, less so in the other major uh, political group in, uh, within the KRG, the, the PUK, but there was a calculation within the KDP that good relations between the KDP and President Erdogan's Justice and Development Party would reduce Turkish neuralgia over KRG independence, and that the KDP would work uh, against the PKK, uh, this terrorist organization that has been battling the Turkish state since 1984, uh, which accrued to the KDP's domestic political advantage anyway, since its rivals were supporting the PKK. Uh, and even after the Islamic State overran Mosul in 2014, some Turkish officials even publicly stated that they didn't have too much of a problem with the idea of an independent KRG because given Iraq's problems, perhaps the KRG would be a buffer to the chaos that was enveloping Iraq. Um, by and large, uh, that sentiment 
is no longer expressed publicly because of the return of the fight with the PKK in 2015. That's killed almost 3,000 people. Uh, I think, broadly speaking, the Turks can accommodate uh, an independent KRG, uh, but while this battle is going on with the PKK, while there is terrorism in the streets in Turkey, uh, they don't believe that this is a very good idea. The question remains, however, should the KRG go forward with its referendum? And I've been assured by officials from the KRG that it will go forward. I've also been told that they will not immediately seek an exit from Iraq. What options do the Turks have? They're certainly not going to invade the KRG, but they can, given their extensive investment in in the KRG, certainly do a significant amount of economic damage to a a part of Iraq that desires to be uh, independent but doesn't really have an economy that can support it. To that. I would just add two additional points. One is a domestic concern for Erdogan, which is the leader of the, the large national party in nationalist party in, in Turkey, the MHP, um, has said that the Kurdish referendum should be viewed as a cause for war in Turkey. So I think Erdogan is also trying to, to balance his domestic considerations in terms of all of the things that, that Dr. Cook outlined in terms of some of the pragmatic approach to regional politics with needing to shore up his nationalist base, especially in advance of these elections in 2019. The second issue is the more geopolitical issue, which is his concern about what the Syrian Kurds are looking to do in northern Syria. And so there's also concern that if you have an independence referendum and the KRG establishes an an independent uh, state, essentially, that it sets a precedent in the region, it wouldn't be much easier for the Syrian Kurds to do the same thing uh, there. Uh, That would be particularly anathema to the Turks because you've got two different factions of Kurds at play there, and the ones with the YPG that are affiliated with the PKK are seen as a much greater existential security threat to Turkey uh, than the ones that that Barzani is leading in the the KRG. Uh, Thank you for that. I I just want to clarify one thing, because I want to make sure I've stated the administration's, this administration's position correctly. They've been pretty blunt in stating and asking us to take the position that the timing of the referendum is very unhelpful. They have not told us that they would, they oppose the referendum, they oppose, you know, uh, Kurds uh, being on a path towards self-determination. They just think the timing is is not helpful, and I, I, I didn't want to misstate what their position is. Thank you for sharing the, the Turkish perspective on it. I think it's a really important issue. Thank you. Senator Coons. Mr. Chairman, uh, Ranking Member, thank you um, for holding this hearing, and to Dr. Sloat and Dr. Cook, um, thank you for your testimony today on this uh, complex and troubled uh, relationship, um, as has been spoken about, as you've testified to. Turkey's detained more than a dozen U.S. citizens since the July 2016 attempted coup, uh, including a resident of Wilmington, Delaware, of my hometown, um, and they have cracked down on human rights and on press organizations. Um, why do you believe they're arresting uh, such a significant number of American citizens? And my core question, what unused levers of influence might we have to push human rights, freedom of speech, and rule of law in Turkey in a positive direction in the months and years ahead? Dr. Sloat, if you'd start. I, my sense is is two things are happening on, on your your 
first part of your question, Senator. First, I think some of these, these Americans are just unfortunately getting caught up in the broader sweep of what's happening in Turkey in terms of going after everyone who's being perceived in some way as supporting the Kurds, supporting the Gulenists, or supporting civil society organizations. Uh, Germany, for example, is having the same problem with several of its citizens being swept up in that. Uh, second, and I think particularly unfortunately, there's a sense that Turkey may be engaging in, in what I would call judicial blackmail, others are calling it diplomatic hostage taking, in terms of recognizing the significance of these individuals to the U.S. government and determining that they perhaps have higher value to, to the U.S. than the Turks necessarily saw. Uh, so the Turks then end up using this as a negotiating point in their conversations with us and other allies where we point out that these individuals are wrongly imprisoned and should be freed. Uh, Turkey says it's a, a case for the judicial system the same way as when they ask us to release Gulen or Reza Zarab. We tell them that this is a, a matter for the judicial system. In terms of, of, of how we respond to this, uh, my understanding is that the administration, certainly in the case of, of Pastor Brunson and others, has been raised at the level of, of President Trump, at Secretary Tillerson. Uh, I think we need to continue making the case to the Turks on the need to release these American citizens who are being wrongly held. Uh, and secondly, we need to not let them engage in this form of judicial blackmail by using these as, as bargaining chips to try and resolve some of their court cases through extrajudicial or, or other means, but, but continue to, to hold firm to the judicial process we have here. Dr. Cohen. Uh, thank you very much uh, for the question. In my, my written testimony, my oral summary, I referenced the Turkish officials politicizing the, the judicial process. And this, is, this, this issue is, is what I'm getting at. Um, uh, Dr. Sloat was very diplomatic, uh, reflective of someone who spent time at the State Department. I have not, so I don't feel the need to be as diplomatic. Essentially, these Americans who are being held are uh, more than bargaining chips. Some might even call them hostages. Uh, it is crucially politically important for uh, the Turks to make some headway in the extradition of Fethullah Gulen, uh, the Pennsylvania-based uh, cleric in exile who's been uh, accused of uh, masterminding the failed coup last July. And more importantly to President Erdogan is the case of Reza Zarab, uh, Iranian-Turkish businessman who will uh, go on trial in New York uh, in the coming months uh, accused of busting sanctions on Iran. Uh, Mr. Zarab apparently is aware of uh, Turkish government officials at the highest level, their involvement in this and corruption around them, which is why this has become so important for President Erdogan to the point where he raised it with President Obama. Um, if, I, if I might cut you off, we, I've got about a minute and a half left. I'd like to ask you just briefly to think about, uh, help me with a bigger question, um, which is what... What are the factors? So going forward, we've seen just a fundamental shift in U.S.-Turkey relations, in the relations between Turkey and the EU and in NATO. What are the factors that ought to underpin, that could credibly underpin the U.S.-Turkey relationship in this century going forward, given where we are today? If you could both could just give me a brief answer. Very quickly, it strikes me that the kind of ideas that we understand the U.S.-Turkey relationship based on the previous half century are no longer valid, right. and that we should look at the relationship purely in transactional terms. 
I would cite three things. The, the first is, is shared security concerns. Uh, where Turkey is geographically, in order to resolve a lot of problems within the region, we need some degree of Turkish cooperation, if not acquiescence and partnership, to go forward. Second, I think our economic relationship has long been underdeveloped. There have been continued efforts to try and, and strengthen that, and I think that's an area where we can, can do. It's not only good for U.S. businesses, but it also can force Turkey to make necessary reforms that will improve stability and, and other mechanisms there. And third, I think it's fundamentally important that we continue to support the people and civil society of Turkey. Uh, if you look at the rend- referendum results, at least 48%, if not more, of the country is opposed to what's happening in Turkey. And I think it's important that we not abandon our friends there who are looking at maintaining a more democratic trajectory in Turkey counter to, to what's currently happening. Thank you, Dr. Slow. Thank you, Dr. Cook. I appreciate both your testimony. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, Dr. Cook, can you give us an, uh, your assessment of the prospects for Turkey's democratic institutions? Uh, thank you very much for the question, Senator Markey. Um, Turkey was never much of a democracy to begin with. Uh, it did have the trappings of a democracy at best. Uh, we could call it a semi-authoritarian system. Uh, throughout, there have been free and fair elections and a dizzying array of coalition governments that are reflective of parliamentary democracies. Uh, all that being said, the democratic institutions, uh, political institutions uh, of Turkey, have either been hollowed out or they have been engineered in a way uh, to advance the parochial political interests of President Erdogan or his tra- broadly transformative national vision. And the best example of that is the referendum that was held last April that changed 18 articles of the Turkish constitution that altered Turkey from a hybrid presidential parliamentary system to a purely presidential system, which will allegedly take place after the elections in 2019, but we already see the effects of it, uh, we already see the effects of it uh, today. What this means is, essentially, President Erdogan has taken advantage of these democratic political institutions, to advance authoritarian politics in Turkey. So the prospects for Turkey's democratic institutions and the nature of institutions themselves, how difficult it is to change them over a long period of time, would suggest that Turkey's immediate and midterm future is likely to be authoritarian. Authoritarian. So the hundreds of thousands of people who lost their jobs, the 100,000 people who were detained, uh, the... uh, 50,000 arrests, uh, all of this subsequent to the uh, April um, 16th constitutional referendum are an indication of how this consolidation of power has, um, uh, has only further deteriorated the democratic institutions. Well, two points of clarification, sir. First, uh, the, the purge, the widespread crackdown that you refer to, uh, actually be accelerated after the failed coup in July 2016. But it is a crackdown that has been going on at least for the two, two and a half years before that failed takeover. Okay, so let me, uh, let me then go to, uh, if I can, the, the Gulen question, because on that night of the quote-unquote coup, that's all we heard from the Turkish leadership was... Uh, Gulen, 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 and Pennsylvania, 
and everyone in America was scratching their heads saying, there was a revolution that began in Pennsylvania that is about to take over Turkey. So uh, maybe you could, uh, Ms. Sloat, give us some information about what you think is the State Department uh, views and actions that they may be taking to ensure that Mr. Gulen, who has lived in the United States since 1999, is not subject to an extradition based upon his political positions rather than any actions that can be attributed to him or his followers. I thank you for the, the question, um, and I would like to clarify, while I worked for the State Department in the past, I am not working for the State Department now. I appreciate now, that. So, so don't want to be representing the, the State How Department. How do you like Cambridge? Sorry? How do you like Cambridge? You know, Turkey is much more interesting to, to watch from the outside than to try no, I'm and saying, manage I know from the you're inside. up in, in the Yes, yes, no, I, it's, yeah, it's a you're beautiful, up in Boston, beautiful city. Up in Cambridge, yeah. Um, I think there, there is a recognition that, that... Which is just the State Department in waiting for both parties. Uh, I, or it has been until this administration. Fair enough, yeah. fair enough. Uh, <clears throat> I, I believe that, that the State Department, the Justice Department, to law enforcement agencies within the U.S. government generally are taking very seriously Turkey's concerns about Gulen and about the followers of Gulen. And I think the fact that there is fairly widespread agreement across all political parties within Turkey about what is seen as Gulen's malign influence society says something. Uh, State Department and Justice Department lawyers last fall met with Turkish officials uh, who handed over large amounts of evidence about what they alleged was Gulen's complicity uh, within the, the coup. As I understand it, there are continued conversations happening between U.S. officials and, and Turkish officials. Uh, within extradition proceedings, we need to have sufficient evidence evidence to prove, to prove uh, that a, a federal judge can determine probable cause to determine extradition, which as I understand it, the Turks have, have not yet provided to us, but there continue to be ongoing conversations and I believe a commitment by the U.S. government to help address Turkey's security concerns and do whatever is necessary to bring those responsible to justice. Thank you. Thank you. Senator Cardin. Dr. Slith, I want to follow up on the human rights issues uh, with your experience as a former person in the State Department. Uh, we've had problems with Turkey for a long time on human rights. Uh, I remember one time within the OSCE, the Helsinki Commission, we had a testimony from one of the opposition um, figures in Turkey as a result of the testimony before our commission that individual was indicted for uh, treason. So you know, Turkey has a long history of concerns within uh, complying with its OSCE commitments. It's a democratic country, but it's tending towards a one-party state. It has committed very serious violations of human rights. Pastor Brunson's uh, detention is wrong, and if it's being held uh, as a hostage, it even is more problematic as far as U.S. relations are concerned. So how do we focus on being a voice for a large percentage of the Turkish people who look at the United States as one of their important uh, allies for returning democracy and human rights to Turkey? How do we reinforce that considering the serious challenges we have in our relationship? 
I thank you for the, the question. I think you're, you're right about the, the trend in, in recent years, and you're also right about our obligation to continue supporting the 50% plus of Turkish society that wants to see the country continue going in a, in a democratic direction. Um, I would disagree a little bit with, with Dr. Cook's characterization that, that certainly the Obama administration had been quiet on, on human rights, as I think it, it was something that was, was stated publicly as, as well as privately, and I think that's, that's important. The challenge in Turkey is that the, the country tends toward anti-Americanism already. There is a tendency to look for external bogeymen and, and others to, to blame for things. And so sometimes extensive and, and excessive public statements can end up backfiring within Turkey because they can get manipulated uh, internally uh, as, as external enemies. That said, I think it is very important both for the Congress, for the administration, to continue making public statements of support for those supporting democracy within Turkey. Uh, I think it's important when senior officials travel to Turkey to continue meeting with, with those who are, are fighting for democracy, and I think it also needs to, to remain a significant part of our bilateral agenda with, with Turkey. I think there is a risk that we end up getting so focused on some of these shared security concerns that some of these rule of law things can drift off the agenda, and I think that's a significant mistake. Well, that, that's my concern. I mean, obviously the urgency of dealing with the security issues, terrorism, uh, the, our military to military, those issues become dominant in our debate, and we sort of uh, don't put the, the proper attention on the deterioration of human rights. Uh, yes, I agree with you. I think our key diplomats need to be very visible in the human rights, including meeting with the, uh, those that are uh, the, the advocating for the return of human rights in Turkey. The challenge is uh, how do we be even more visible in that support? What else can we do to sort of underscore the importance to the relationship between Turkey and the United States that democratic institutions be restored and human rights respected? I think while we need to continue the, the government-to-government dialogue on a lot of our shared security concerns, there also needs to be an effort to try and broaden the scope of our engagement with, with Turkey. And it's, it's complicated, but I think that's where more people-to-people -people ties can come in. And I would also argue that that's where trying to strengthen and deepen our bilateral trade agenda would come in, because there is a way of being able to use economic engagement to motivate some reforms. Uh, the state of emergency, for example, is one of the biggest drags on foreign direct investment in Turkey right now because people don't have confidence that their property is not going to be seized, that cases are going to be litigated fairly within court. Uh, so the economics can not only be beneficial to American business, but it can also be another direction at getting at the importance of some of these rule of law issues. Dr. Cook, do you have any suggestions in regards to advancing human rights? I, I do. Uh, I, I do, sir. Let me, I, if, if I may, let me just respond to, to a number of the comments that, that Dr. Sloat had made. I certainly believe that we should be supporting our friends in Turkey, but I suspect that that group is a lot smaller than we suspect. There is a vast reservoir of anti-Americanism in Turkey. Uh, that includes people who uh, are involved in civil society and, and other types of activist activity. Um, in addition, I think that the broader public uh, given the narrative of last summer's fail, the summer 2016's uh, failed coup d'etat, that a Pennsylvania-based cleric, with the support of the American government, 
was somehow involved in uh, the, the failed effort has even narrowed uh, your, your average Turk's uh, view of the United States. In addition, I think that the private diplomacy that we conduct and the in whatever public criticism we have leveled against the government of Turkey in the past, the effect has been the same. So I'm not sure why we are reluctant to continue public criticism and, in fact, turn up the public criticism. At the very least, at the very least, we can be true to our values and perhaps we will get the Turkish government's attention by being public in our censure of their human rights record. I also want to point out that the deterioration of human rights in Turkey also has a profound impact on our own security. Uh, The Mm -hmm. widespread purges in Turkey have had a significant effect on the capacity of Turkish security forces, the Turkish armed forces, which is the second largest military in NATO after that of the United States, having a very hard time in its operations in Syria. It is a question whether Turkey actually can be that military partner, in part because so many officers have been purged from the armed forces. I just finally want to add that it strikes me that it is important for the United States to publicly engage with Turkish officials and the Turkish public about the importance of human rights, about the importance of democratic uh, institutions. I don't, unfortunately, believe that that is going to affect a significant change in the trajectory of Turkish politics, if only because President Erdogan seems single-mindedly determined to undertake this transformation of Turkish politics. And the only way that he thinks that he can do it is by accumulating and consolidating personal power. I thank both our witnesses. Thank you very much. Thank you both. You've been outstanding witnesses. I think the Turkish relationship has been thoroughly examined today, but there'll be additional written questions, especially from people who weren't here. So we'd like to keep the uh, record open until the close of Business Monday. I know that both of you have day jobs, but to the extent you could answer the questions fairly promptly, we'd appreciate it again. Thank you for offering your expertise today and helping us as we think through this, this difficult relationship. And with that, uh, the meeting is adjourned. Thank you so much.